ever read the scripture and just kind of like, wow, that is true. I understand that all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. But once in a while, you just get a text and you're like, boy, that is a true statement. This is one of them for me. John recognizes that from the time he existed till now, until Christ comes back, there's going to be this ongoing revelation or, if you will, kind of a forever new mutation of the Antichrist, false prophets, coming and claiming to speak for God, luring people away. And because of that, John says you need to be prepared. One of my favorite quotes or kind of uh, thoughts of wisdom came from John MacArthur, a pastor down in Southern California. And he said years ago, probably 30 years ago, he says, if there's one gift I could give my congregation, I would give them the gift of discernment. I, I struck me at the time because I was like, well, why, why wouldn't you, you know, I mean, Solomon, wisdom, that's a nice one. Um, certainly we wouldn't want to give everyone, you know, 10 million, that would ruin them. So I, I get the thing, but I was like, uh, but the more I have witnessed seasons, time, people, false prophets, I think he's right. And the reason is because of what John says in this text. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And the reason why is because every generation is going to have their false teachers who come and claim to speak for God. Every generation is going to have them. We're not going to be special. It's not going to be just the end times. It's not going to be just the last days. We could go over the series and the history of the church. And there's been all kinds of different people that have come along. Every false teacher is going to have one thing in common, John says. In fact, every major religion has one thing in common. It was an interesting thing because it struck me even as a kid. That every false religion had this in common. Jesus They all believed in Jesus. What they believed about Jesus was different, but they all believed in Jesus. They all dealt with Jesus. He was the half-brother of Lucifer. He was a prophet. He was, and the list goes on. They all deal with him. And in fact, they did in this text. John says there's going to be some who come. And he says, this is how you recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The opposite of that is also inferred in fact there was a lot of individuals who were professing that christ didn't come in the flesh that god didn't come in the flesh that christ wasn't the messiah but every religion every major religion and most minor have some kind of view of jesus and they take the truth of christ and they don't deny it they twist it As one person said, they take 90% truth to float 10% lie. And the next thing you know, what you have as you walk down the path is not the real Christ, but something that is uh, an alteration of it. But not so significant that you would want to reject it. Most of those false teachings, John says, begin in the church tells us in chapter 2, 
Verse 19, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. If they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. On the grander scale, the more national scale, international scale, you chase down Charles Manson, Jim Jones, David Koresh, all of them find their roots in the church. Um, the church is often enamored with and threatened by Hollywood. I'm not trying to endorse Hollywood. I'm just saying I don't think they're the threat. At least the scripture says that they're not the threat. The threat is what? Those from within. Those who were once one of us. Those who were a part of us. Maybe even those who taught with us. A number of years ago, Carrie and I, we had, we had a couple in our church and she was involved in our children's program and Carrie was certainly teaching there too at the time. And this is a different church, so you can rest at ease. Um, and uh, an appointment came and they, they showed up and they, they said, I said, I thought they were here for marital stuff. And, you know, it's like, how can I help you? And, and the husband starts off and says, well, my wife makes up in the middle of the night and she just kind of curls up in a ball and she hisses at me like a cat. Like, huh, that's a little strange. I never liked cats. I don't like them even more now. <laughs> it was perplexing, yes. And really in some ways threatening because she taught. She knew the scriptures. She could proclaim the gospel. But she was as possessed as any demoniac that I knew. She was one of us. But she wasn't really with us. And what happened is, is that through that process, we began to reveal an attachment to the evil one that began when she was eight. Most false teachings, John says, are going to come from within. And that's the reason why they can deceive. That's the reason why you have to be discerning. Because these false prophets are going to manifest themselves in a variety of ways. Sometimes they're going to come through people, just like I reported to you. Some are going to come through objects, things that people have entrusted certain powers to. A good friend of ours years ago, he's now in heaven, when we were ministry to the Oregon State campus, Bob, we... We were ministering to this one woman, but her name was Mary, and she'd go to Bible studies and periodically just turn the furniture upside down. She'd have like this superhuman strength, and we thought, well, that's kind of weird. But college students have kind of a stomach for a broad bandwidth of weird behavior. And so, therefore, we didn't think. It's like, well, that wasn't horrible. I mean, she's not murdering anybody yet. One day on campus, Bob was with us, and he said to Mary, Mary, would you take your ring off? And she fought it and fought it and fought it until Bob claimed the power of Christ. She took the ring off and collapsed. Sometimes Satan comes to us through objects that have been empowered by people. Sometimes Satan comes to us through people. Sometimes he comes to us through board games and a variety of things. We don't use them as much, but the Ouija board was one. And sometimes they come to us through guides. Uh, years ago, I was in Thailand and we were floating through the canals of Bangkok. And I don't know why we were doing that. Somebody had a bad day. And so they said, hey, this is a really fun trip. And so we got on these boats that 
looked like they were going to die right there and sink. And uh, this guide, and she started off with us, and like a good guide, she was exploring, who are you? Oh, we're a Christian organization. Oh, great, I'm a Christian. I'm like, this is so cool. We have a Christian guiding us through the sewer traps of Bangkok. This is nice. It's cool. And we're cruising along. And, and then she starts to elaborate about her Buddhist husband and how, how open she was to his faith and how, how harmonious their marriage was. And that was my first flag. It's like, huh, okay, Christian married to a Buddhist and she enjoys that. And all of a sudden, I, I'm not afraid of snakes and lizards. I just don't have any fetish for them. The idea of buying one seems weird. Um, but this lizard came by and she like freaked out and she goes oh that's a so-and-so lizard and it's like that means i'm gonna have good luck today so she's a christian buddhist animist man that's a good world i'm going through the troughs of hell being led by a demonic spirit what a great day the reality is is it meant nothing to her Throw a little Jesus in, throw a little Buddha in, throw a little animism in, mix it up, and wow, I've got life by the tail. John said, that's going to be normal. You're going to have people who deny Christ. You're going to have people who fabricate Christ and twist Christ. They're going to make all kinds of things. And that's why he says, you need to test the spirits. True faith is going to examine its object before putting confidence in it. So he says, dear friends, do not believe. In other words, do not be gullible to every person that comes along saying, I am speaking for God. Don't do that. In fact, develop a healthy skepticism. He uses a term to test. It's in verse 1. And there's two terms he could have used. One is to test and approve of something. Kind of what I would call quality control. Make sure that which presents itself is really true to the core. There's another word he could have used. And that is to test to disprove. In other words, you have a bent of rejection towards it. And John doesn't use the second one. He uses the first word. And meaning, he doesn't want you to become a cynic. He doesn't want you to go to every community group and every class and every sermon and go, I think Satan's going to be behind this one. That's not the disposition he's asking you to take. He is saying, don't be gullible. There's no virtue in the Christian community to have a gullible person. It should not be a high value to you. To blindly put your head in the sand and to just believe the best about everyone. It's not being kind. It's not being truthful. We need to test and approve. And what do we test it against? This is going to be critical. You trust, test it against the plumb line of the truth. He says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. This is the test. There's a standard. What is it? Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Where did that come from? Christ himself. I and the father are one. I have come to speak that which the Father has given to me. 
I'm here on a mission to seek and to save that which is lost, sent by the Father. And what John is telling them is, my friends, is you're going to have a lot of spirits that come along and they're going to proclaim that they're from God. But you have to align them or you have to kind of bring them under or bring them in alignment with the plumb line of God's word. Yesterday I was talking to a spiritualist. It's a person that believes in God, but really God is a caricature of their own imagination. God is kind of something that they've made up. They believe in a higher power, but that God has really no fundamental opinion about alcoholism and weed and sleeping with other people. I mean, God, why would God care about that, right? I mean, that seems rather pedantic and kind of small on God's big, large scale. And as we were discussing his, he, he's made a mess of his life. And usually when that happens, he gives me a call. How can I get right with God? How can I come back into fellowship with God? That was the question. I need to ask you a question. What do you believe? What God are you talking about? Your God or mine? Because my God, I believe, is revealed in this word. I've come to the place in my life long time ago that I believe this word is the inspired word of God, protected by God, inspired by him, governed by him, canonized by him, overseen by him. And through this word, I understand who God is and who Christ is and who I am. And John is telling them, dear friends, when you walk out of this world, into this world, you have a decision you have to make. What's going to be your plumb line? What are you going to judge things against? Because he says, you have a question you need to ask about Jesus. Where does that question come from? The Lord himself. John not only says, do you have to hold to a plumb line, but you have to be willing to put every experience to the test. And that is you, you, you can't allow people to trump or to override the word of God with their experience. I'm, I'm pretty concerned with how many times I hear Christians utilize circumstances are kind of like coincidence as, oh, that's the will of God. That's the pleasure of God. That's the heart of God. Disregarding the word of God that has maybe specific things to think about it. And my friend who's now in heaven, Haddon Robinson, told me the story one time of a woman who worked for him and came to him and said, hey, I need to go visit my parents. Well, it's not a good time for you to go. Oh, God wants me to go visit my parents. Okay, how do you argue with that one? What makes you believe God wants you to go visit your parents? She said, well, I was praying and I was kneeling because that makes the prayer a little bit more powerful. And so she said, I was kneeling and I prayed and I lifted my eyes and I looked at the clock and it said 747. And I knew that was God's sign. I need to go visit my parents. Haddon was brilliant. And this is what he said. "Uh, Dear, if that digital clock said DC 10, I'd get on the plane. But it said 747. It's going to say that every day. 
We take our experiences, and, and sometimes people take their dream life. Man, I, I'm telling you straight up. If you took my dream life and said, thus saith the Lord, and attached it to my dream life, we would be in Looneyville. <laughs> when I was younger, I, I didn't think I had a lot of dreams. I didn't remember them. And if I had a dream and had dreams, and you who are into dream therapy, feel free to diagnose what I'm about to say. And I know that I'm going to be seeing you this week. But... I, when I was younger, I, I don't know that I had dreams. I didn't remember them. Probably the last 10, 15 years, my wife tells me, good night. I am fighting the world at night sometimes. Man, I'm swinging, taking, you know, demons and, and casting them places. I've never used any of your names, so just be a, uh, rest assured. <laughs> Not that that means anything. But if I were to take my dream life and somehow say, wow, that's God's voice, I would be crazy. John says there, there has to be a standard and you come back and the standard is dealing with what he says, I believe is the most critical thing and that is that Christ is the key. We're going to have wonderful debates about the origins of the earth. They will be fun, fruitful, but they're not the key. We're, we're going to at times have wonderful and fruitful theological discussions on eschatological issues. That's end times issues. And well, some of you are going to be pre-trib and some of you are going to be post-trib. And the post-trib are going to hope that the pre-trib are right. And the pre-trib are looking at the post-trib and says, if you're right, I hate you. <laughs> and the mid-tribbers are just kind of sitting in the middle fighting it out. But the reality is at the end of the day... It's, it's not going to be a big, big issue. It's going to be what it's going to be. But Jesus, my friends, you've got to get it right. You can't miss on that one. Spurgeon said this. He says, Christ is the sum and the substance of theology. In other words, the Old Testament looked forward to Christ. The gospel revealed Christ. The epistles looked at the implications of Christ in the world. And the revelation anticipates the return of our king. All of them from their different directions point to what? Jesus. John says, when you want to test the spirits, it's one issue you have to deal with. You want to test what the origin of this person is, the origin of their language, the origin of their word. It's, it's this. Tell me what they believe about Christ. And this text deals with a number of them. Number one, it deals with the issue of the origin of Christ. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That spirit is from God. Why? Because Christ is from God. The church created this concept of the immaculate conception. Believing that unholy God could not enter into a, an unholy person. So Mary was immaculately, miraculously conceived. Um, the reality is, I don't think there's been one person on this earth that is sinless other than Jesus. And I have no problem believing that the Holy Spirit came upon a young woman by the name of Mary. And she's esteemed, she's to be honored, and she's to be in many ways celebrated as a really godly servant. She's not sinless. The origin of Christ was God. And he made a decision to enter into this world and the Holy Spirit came upon a woman. And when the Holy Spirit came upon that woman, he was conceived and he lived his life. And the scriptures tells us that he lived a perfect life. 
he was without sin. Never sinned. Now when I get to heaven, one of the fun conversations I look forward to having is with Mary. Mary, what was it like to raise a perfect child? I didn't get that privilege. Nor did my mother. Jesus was perfect. Did you ever want to correct him and think, oh, how do you correct perfection? Do you ever have any of the other kids? How come Jesus never gets in trouble? Do you ever have any jealousy? Do you ever have any times where you just wanted to say, Jesus, oh, sorry, you're God. He had to have, but he was sinless. And if he's not sinless, then his death is meaningless. But Christ is the key. Not only was he from God, not only is his life perfection, but his death, it was orchestrated by God. It wasn't because some Roman soldiers got angry and threatened. It wasn't because of some Jewish religious fanatics that were somehow threatened of Christ. He died because the father and the son determined that that was the means of saving you. Judas was a pawn, if you will, used by the Father to fulfill the prophetic word of God. His death was a substitutionary death for you. He died in your place. He bore your sins. Every last one of them he died for. And by the way, he forgave. Every one of them. The small ones that don't have much impact, the big ones that seem like they devastate you. His resurrection, he was seen by over 500 people. He was touched. He ate. Why is that important? Because when you die, I want to be able to tell your family you can see them again. When I die, I want my family to know the best is yet to come. Our body will be raised from the dead and it will be glorified and we will receive from Christ that which he received, the immortal, and it will take on immortality and eternal capacity to live with God forever. You will never, ever have another backache. For those of you younger, you have no idea. His return, one day, The scripture says that we're going to look up and the entire world is going to see this. It will be something far more compelling. You remember the eclipse where everyone stopped and everyone went out and looked at it. It was really glorious. It was beautiful. It was really in some ways, I would have to say, almost kind of divine. It was supernatural. It's like, wow, we're all in this one place, but not the whole world. But on that day, it says the world will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And some of you, most of you in this room, when you bow, you're going to be weeping and thinking to yourself, we made it. Christ has come. This is done. No more politics. Hallelujah, man. We're finished. And you're going to be going, yes. And then you're going to look over and you're going to see somebody who had rejected Christ. And they're going to be weeping for a completely different reason. Because you got to get Jesus right. You do. That's what John says. It's all about Christ. Christ. 
Because Christ has the final say. You dear children, you're from God. And you've overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. There's days you feel like you're losing it. There's days on a grander scale that we kind of think, wow, it's not like the way it used to be. There's days that we feel disappointed where our country is going and we lament that. But John is taking us to the day when we will discover Jesus wins. And he goes on to say something that almost seems a little arrogant. He says in verse 6, we are from God and whoever knows God, whoever knows God, they're with us. But whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. It seems arrogant. It's like, you know, if you listen to us, you're from God. You reject us, from the devil. John's not talking about every subject. He's talking about Christ. As I was talking to my friend yesterday, I realized that I, I, I didn't have to be defensive. I didn't have to convince him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, by the way. But I could say, the truth is revealed. You have to get Jesus right. And for all of your spiritualism and for all of the fabrication of the spiritual world that you've created, in this moment, it's not going to do a thing for you and you know it. And if you're ready to surrender... Today's a good day to acknowledge Jesus. You are from God. You lived a sinless life. You died on the cross for me so that I might live eternally with you. John says you have to get Jesus right. Why? Because your life depends upon it. Imagine if me, with me for a moment if you were a, a parent. And just for the sake of this conversation, I'll take the position of a father. And imagine if you get a, you're a dad and you get a phone call. And uh, the police on the other end say, uh, we have your daughter. We've arrested her. She's in jail. And you can come down and get her and bail her out. It's going to be you tell your wife and she wants to go with you. She's not going to let you go on this thing alone and face this. And so she notices a suitcase that you have and doesn't really understand the suitcase. But frankly, her focus is on her daughter. She's arrested, doesn't really know what she's done, just knows that it's $25,000 to take her home. And she's willing to do that. You go down there and the dad walks up and wife right there with her and goes up to the bail bondsman and he, he fills out all the forms and he does and he goes, do you have the money? He said, yes, I do. And he pulls that suitcase and he puts it on the counter and he opens it up and the guy's looking at it going, wow, that is some really crisp, nicely organized Monopoly money. And he looks at the guy trying to figure out, man, are you just like pulling some stupid joke? Don't you get it? Your daughter's in jail. And the guy goes, hey, by the way, if this is not enough, I brought Park's Place and New York Avenue. 
and I can use it for, for collateral because I want to take my daughter home. The guy looks at him and said, sir, I'm afraid you're serious, aren't you? Yes, I am. We don't deal in the currency of monopoly money. We only deal in the currency of the dollar. You can put it on a credit card, but that's fake currency. It's not real currency. You want to take your daughter home. And on that day, that gentleman is going to leave with three things. Number one, he's going to leave with a suitcase of monopoly money that is pointless. He's going to leave with the disappointment of his daughter who's going to wonder, Dad, what kind of stupid joke is this? Don't you love me? And he's going to leave with the most furious wife in the world. Do you not understand? This is the real world, honey. That's a real daughter. And why did you bring this garbage? Fast forward to the day you die. Or to the day Christ returns. And we're going to stand before him. I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know if it's going to be at a gate. I don't know if it's going to be what it's going to look like Ellis Island. I have no idea. I haven't been there. But the scripture says in Hebrews 9, 27, inasmuch as is it appointed that all people will die one time and then comes judgment. And you're going to stand before God Christ the judge. And I don't know if this is the kind of question they will ask, but I think it will be close to this. Why should we let you in heaven? And some of you are going to be marvelously prepared and you're going to whip out your vita of all the things. I attended First Baptist Church. I tithe the First Baptist Church. I went on a number of mission trips. I went to all of the important ones and, and I served and, and I raised my kids and my kids went to Awana and you're going to lay out all of those things. And more likely than not, you might even see a tear in Christ's eye because the father's going to look at you and say, you don't get it, do you? We don't deal in the currency of works. To use a word that Paul said one day, it's rubbish. You might as well unpack a suitcase of monopoly money and put it before the father and say, can I buy a day in heaven? No. Why? Because you have to get Jesus right. And the Father will tell you on that day, there's only one currency that we recognize in heaven. There's only one economy between you and heaven. And it's the blood of Christ. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. The one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the Father on that day, and you're going to walk away because inasmuch it is appointed that all men will die and then comes judgment. And from my understanding, at that point when you stand before God, there's not a place where you get to go. Go over to the green room, get it together, come back in front of us again. 
He's going to ask you. It's a one-shot deal. Why should I let you in heaven? Or maybe he will ask it this way. What did you believe about Jesus? And John gives you this test. Why? Because your life depends on it. You can jerk around like my friend that I talked with yesterday. Or you can play games like a good brother this morning who talked to me. And you can go pursue whatever you want. But understand, you got to get Jesus right. Because you and I are going to stand before him one day. And the father is going to ask, what did you do with my son? You got to get Jesus right. And that's why John says, there's one test. And you have to be able to discern and test. Is this spirit, is this teaching, is this proclamation from God or is it from the evil one? And if you don't know the difference, then the likelihood is is you're going to stand before the father with a suitcase of monopoly money. And out of the periphery of your eye, you'll see Jesus' eye and he will weep. Because the only economy heaven recognizes is the blood of Christ. You have to get Jesus right.